I come tonight to you with um, great gratitude for having the opportunity to speak on um, death and dying. This is a huge topic, and I am going to be able to touch about that much in the time allotted. I'm really glad um, I see several familiar faces, and that's always a nice thing. But in particular, um, I'm very pleased that my old friend Ed Morgan is here. Because without Ed, there could be no Diana. And without Diana, I wouldn't be here talking about death and dying. Many years ago, you need to know I wear two hats. Half of my life is spent as a Zen priest leading a small group and traveling around the country and giving talks and leading retreats. The other half of my life is as the school librarian at Peninsula School in Menlo Park. And to say that Peninsula School is a one-of-a-kind school is a major understatement. Uh, and I do not say that with pride, more with wry amusement. Uh, it started as a uh, Quaker-based uh, school, started by the Duvenex, who also started Hidden Villa. Uh, but it is one of the last bastions of hippiedom, as far as I can see. And it is a progressive, alternative, wonderful opportunity for children to continue to be children. And I feel blessed every day to have incredible right livelihood in being there. So I started teaching at Peninsula School in, uh, let me think about this, 1989. And it wasn't too long after that that without my putting the word out, little by little it leaked out that I was a Zen priest. It wasn't something I was, you know, kind of running around announcing. Um, but once people know something about, like that about you, um, suddenly weird things begin to happen. Uh, they start coming by for, you know, five-minute counseling sessions <laughs> in the library. <laughs> but I figure Buddhism spreads in whatever way it can, so it's okay. But one day, I was in the library, and I was between classes when my director walked into the room and she said, Diana Morgan has gone to the hospital. Her family needs you. You need to go. <laughs> it's pretty unusual that a director would do such a thing. I didn't know, I didn't know Ed at all. I barely knew his uh, ex-wife at the time, but I did know Diana. And all I knew was that she had been uh, diagnosed, possibly, they weren't even absolutely sure, with a brain tumor. So I said, fine, can I go now? And my director said, please, do. Well, you can imagine when you first find out that your child has a fatal, possibly, illness. Uh, chaos you know, is, is how everybody is feeling. And when I arrived... Uh, bewilderment, confusion, grief, upset. And I will tell you quite honestly, 
I did not want to be there. Now, this is something that Ed and I have actually never talked about. Not this part. But this is the part I want to share with you tonight. Because I was coming back from Los Angeles this weekend, visiting my family. And it was a beautiful, beautiful day when I left. It was so incredibly clear. And I was sitting by the window. And as we were leaving Los Angeles, I looked down. And this is someplace I grew up. I was thinking how, how ugly it was. Just miles and miles of dun-colored boxes and lines of freeways and cars everywhere and smog hanging up in the hills. And I thought to myself, I, I was filled with a great sadness because I thought, we have really, we have really made a mess of living. And then the thought arose, well, of course we have because we make a mess of dying. And how can you know how to live if you don't know how to die. In this culture, we are so afraid to talk about death, to witness death, to be a part of death. I can't tell you the number of times people say to me, oh, I don't know what to write. My best friend's mother has just died and I just, I can't <coughs> write the note because I don't know what to say. We have no practice. We have no training. No one has ever modeled this for us. We have lost contact with the most important event of our lives. Why is that? It scares us. And instead of going towards it, we go in every possible other direction that we can. See, it's okay to watch dying and death in shoot 'em up movies. Lots of people do that because they can walk away and they can, they can know that their favorite actor is going to rise again and be in the next movie. But we all know that that doesn't work for us. When we die, that's it for the corporeal body. That's it. So when I went to the hospital that day, I said to my, kept saying to myself, you're a Zen monk. This is what Zen monks do. They go and they witness death. You know, come on, get, get it together here. But there was this other part of me going, well, what am I going to say? What am I going to do? What could I possibly, how could I possibly be of any use to these people? How can I help Diana? This is terrible. What am I going to do? <laughs> well, you arrive and you just, do what you can in that moment. I remember the exact scene. I remember the bed that she was in when I walked in. It was not the bed she ended up in later. But And the family dynamics were not simple because her parents were divorced by that time and they had to make very big decisions even though they weren't living together anymore. This makes it even harder. And I knew right away, because Ed and I really didn't know each other, and his ex-wife and I did, my first connection would be with Diana and my second would be with her, but 
I knew that it couldn't stay that way. And so I never told him, but I was tremendously grateful that his battery had died in his car. Because then I was able to say, I'll take you to your car. I have cables. I can help. And that was the first connection that we made. And everything got easier after that. But what to do when someone is in serious crisis, when someone is dying? That never gets any easier. As Diana's condition progressed, and she ended up in a hospital room at Packard Children's Hospital, she was alone in that room. Thank goodness for that. I cannot tell you how awful the hospital system can be. Many of you probably already know. But her room had a double door. There was the door you first went in, then a little ante room, and then the second door. Part of, you know, really to give the patient a lot of privacy. I cannot tell you the number of times that I walked through that first door and did not want to walk through the second one. What am I going to say? What am I going to do today? How do you talk to a little girl who is being subjected to, I cannot tell you what awful procedures, all the time, middle of the night, painful things, a stinter, oh, sorry, a stint to her heart. I have to tell you what I finally ended up doing because I didn't know what else to do with a little 12-year-old girl. I sang her songs. I didn't have any words of advice. I couldn't offer her any wisdom. I couldn't make the pain any less. I couldn't stop those nurses and doctors from coming in at 2 a.m. in the morning when she was sound asleep, waking her up because they had to give her something or they had to take blood or they had to do something. So when they would come in, if it was just me there, I would sit by her ear and try to distract her attention. It was a form of mindfulness. (laughs) I just started singing very softly into her ear so that she would stop paying attention to what they were doing and just hear my voice. It was the only thing I could think of to do. When I told Shaila the name that I wanted to give this talk this months ago, Death and Dying, Returning to the Source, there's a double meaning here. Dying individually, our own, our own death, is returning to the source of all being. Dying, when you are assisting at the death of someone else, is also returning to a source. It is returning to the source of all your fear. Your fear of incompetence. Your fear of rejection. What if she doesn't want me to be in there? (laughs) Your fear of not being good enough. 
your fear of being found wanting, of being found stupid, of all kinds of fears come up. And one by one, you, that individual, have to face it at the same time that the dying person has to face all of their fears. And that is actually what brings you together. This, this is the gift that Diana gave to me. This was the first time I had attended at anyone's major health crisis and eventual dying and death. If I could have her here at this moment, I would give anything to do it. No amount of teaching is worth that. But if she had to die, she gave me, and I think many, many people, an incredible gift. She gave me the gift of experience. Buddhism, among all the religions of the world, relies on experience and experience alone. It does not rely on doctrines. You can talk about the four thises and the 21 thats and the you know, 15 whatevers, but it is nothing but pointing at the moon <coughs> until you have an experience of loving kindness. You can talk about loving kindness all you want until you have an experience of dying with someone. You can't do anything. Unfortunately, I can't talk about my own experience of death because once that happens, there won't be anyone here to speak. But what Diana offered me was the gift of her willingness to let me be there. I can't tell you what a huge gift that is. At any time, she could have said, I don't want her here. And her parents would have said, adios, Misha. And they would have been right to do it. I think she suffered us all. I think she could have wished that she would be anywhere but where she was. She was going through the beginnings of adolescence and the indignities of being in a hospital and having people treat you. They try to be kind, but really and truly, you are a body. And they don't worry about the fact that you're beginning to be a young woman. It's still very undignified. But Diana, she let me read to her. She let me sing to her. She didn't tell me, I've heard that song a million times now. Go away. I mean, silly stuff. Mary Poppins songs. I, you know, I couldn't think. I just wanted to help her concentrate, not on the pain, but on just staying with my voice. To the very end, she was so brave, so kind, almost never complained. She would cry if it was painful, and it was often painful. You can't have a brain tumor and have it not be painful. And little by little, she started losing the use of her limbs. 
and her, you know, her head was painful because it was swelling. But right up to the end, you know, she gave that little sweet smile. It was a gift. I didn't know it then. I couldn't thank her for it. She knew I loved her. I made sure she knew that. But tonight, I can be here talking to you about this. But because of Diana, I have now been involved in a very deep way with six more people's dying since that time. One of whom, someone talked to someone at the school who told them the story, and that person said, oh, I wish I had a Misha to help me right now because her husband had just had a recurrence of colon cancer and he was going to die. And this person said, oh, why don't I introduce you? So that was the second death that I attended for two years. And the interesting thing is, every death is different. Everyone comes to that death differently prepared. In a way, Diana's youth was in her favor. She hadn't made up her mind about all kinds of things. She couldn't even feel sorry in a way that she was dying so young because she was so young she didn't even know how young she was. But the next death that I was helping with was a man, probably in his late 40s at that point, And he was so angry. He was so angry about getting the cancer and having it come back. And he fought that death every step of the way. He did not want any help. He did not want any advice. He did not want any way to make it easier on himself. He pushed everyone away, including his wife. So there was another difficult thing. How am I supposed to be with someone who does not want me there? So in that case, I supported his wife, who became a very dear friend of mine. And I tried my best to find things to meet Jose where he was, to try and let go of my own judgment And that's the other thing that comes up a lot, boy. A lot of judgment about how somebody's supposed to die. It's a good death. It's a bad death. Oh, why are they whining so much? Two of my Zen students have died. And I was there with both of them. One was in her 70s and felt that, you know, She was ready. She had been practicing uh, meditation for five years after a lifetime of being an Episcopalian. And I remember when she first came to the group, uh, at the end of our evening, we always offer three bows for well-being. And we ask people to um, uh, say the names, just the first names, of anyone they would like to be remembered in these bows. And this person was very skeptical. It's like, what? What is that? And I said, well, Carol, you know, you don't have to do it. 
and just be respectful and let other people. But I've just found over the years, somehow just bringing that person to our heart and mind. I don't know. Maybe it's just my own fantasy. But people seem to feel better knowing someone is thinking about them, is offering them goodwill. Well, she broke her leg. And I get this phone call and she says, I know you're going to think this is funny, but would you mind offering a few bows for me? I was like, Carol, I would be delighted to. And that was the moment of turning in her practice. Instead of standing on the outside being a spectator, which I think we all do at the beginning of practice. We sort of stand back and we watch and we see, hmm, what's this all about? But at some point we jump in. That was the point for her. Because I said, well, actually, without you knowing it, I've already been offering bows. I knew it. She said, "I, I knew it. In the last six months of her life, I was with her a lot. And here's the thing I know about practice. Because it happened again with my other student who just died recently. Once you are on that path where you know there is no turning back, you are not going to get better. It's like your practice leaps forward in a way beyond what you you even thought you were capable of. In both of these cases, these women would tell me things. They, they would read something in you know, some Buddhist text and they would then tell me what their experience of it was. I have senior students who have been with me for 20 years who could not have said those things. Again, these people in their dying process are actually experiencing Buddhism. They are experiencing emptiness the emptiness of the separate self dissolving. They are understanding suddenly their connection to everything. In the middle of those deaths was the death of someone very, very dear to me. And again, I can only thank Diana that I was able to absolutely and completely be present for this person because in some ways it's easier to do hospice work with someone you don't know very well, at least at the beginning. Eventually, if you're doing real hospice work, you get involved completely anyway. But when you really care about the person to begin with, if this is a really major important person in your life, then your own attachments... (laughs) get in the way. This woman's name was Peg Anderson. And while it is true that I had a Zen teacher for many years who was the one who ordained me and gave me permission to teach eventually, what I have now realized is I actually had two Zen teachers because Peg was my tea ceremony teacher. And I have practiced tea ceremony as long as I have done Zen meditation, so over 20 years. For Peg, tea ceremony was meditation. She 
started out as a student of Suzuki Roshi's and Kobenchino Roshi's and, and she did meditation and she was an adept really. But once she discovered tea ceremony, that became her meditation. Now the thing you need to understand about her is Peg was a very no-nonsense, down-to-earth kind of person. She had been a kindergarten teacher. And when she died, you really knew it because she had kept everything, every scrap of paper, every, every little piece of string that might be used for an art project. This is, this is characteristic of kindergarten teachers, I have to tell you. She was very open, very tolerant. She died at the age of 93. I met her for the first time when she was, I think it was 79. <coughs> she was one of the most open-minded and tolerant people I've ever met in my life. And I can't tell you all the wonderful things, but just I will give you one vignette because then I can explain her dying a little better. Because she was a practitioner of the Dharma, because she worked on her attachments, her aversions, her desires, her delusions, all the time. Very, very clear mind. One day, it happened, it happened fairly often, that I would show up on a Thursday afternoon and be the only tea student for that week. I was, I was very regular and other people had busier lives, I think. So she brought out one of her very special bowls. It was a pretty flat bowl and it was a Korean uh, tea bowl and it was meant to be for summer so that most of the heat would rise. You know, a winter bowl is closer, keep the heat in. This was almost like a plate and you'd be whisking the tea but you'd have to be very careful so that the tea didn't go flying out with centrifugal force. This bowl was 300 years old. And it was one of her prized possessions. And I think on this day, we actually were not using it to serve tea. She had actually put the little sweets, what's called yokan, on it with the chopsticks. And so we were using it as a serving plate. So I served at the tea. I served at the sweets. She was the only guest. And when it was all over, you, part of the ceremony is you bring all the things in and then you serve and then you take all the things back out. Well... In tea ceremony, there's a big, heavy metal brazier. The bottom portion, it's two halves, the bottom portion has a heating element in it. The top portion is called the kama, and that's what holds the water. And then there's a long ladle, I'm sure you've seen these bamboo ladles, and that's where you dip in to get the hot water to make the tea. When the tea ceremony is over, and you have to roll up the imaginary tea room, which was in her living room. The kama, you, there are two iron rings that get put in and it gets taken out into the kitchen. And then by flipping those rings over, the kama can be emptied of its water and then you put it on the stove, turn on the heat just a little, and that evaporates the rest of the, the dampness. But Peg always liked to save the boiled water in her teapot. She had grown up in the depression. She saved everything, even water from the comma. You didn't just throw <coughs> it down the sink. So that day I took the comma out to the sink. It was a double metal sink, but not divided.
But in the process of the tea ceremony, one of the very first things uh, that you do is you've taken out the little tray that has the sweets. And I had put it on one side of the sink. So I put the comma on the counter on the other side. I went to get the teapot. I put it in the sink. And I had taken the, the little lid off the comma and put it on the edge of the sink. And then I went and I flipped over the comma to pour the water into the other teapot. And I accidentally pushed the little lid. It fell into the sink, rolled, and took off this much of the Korean tea ball. Couldn't very well blame it on anyone else. Sayings, no one else was there. I was devastated. I knew how much this bowl meant to her. There was nothing for it. I picked up the two tiny little pieces. I picked up the bowl and I went out. I said, Peg, I have something really terrible to tell you. Oh, what's that? I held out the bowl. I said, I am so sorry, but I broke your bowl. And I've got the little pieces here, and I think I can glue them together, but I know it'll never look the same. And she took the bowl, and she looked at it. And then she looked at me. Well, these things happen. What my tea teacher understood, which is what the dying understand, which is what we are trying to understand in practice is, there is nothing more important than relationship. No table. No fancy painting, no piece of furniture, no family heirloom. There is nothing more important than this. This is what our practice is always trying to show us. Peg started to die of old age. She had been dying since I met her, practically. It got to the point, you know, at first it was a cane, and then it was a walker. She was hard of hearing. I'd try to take her out to lunch, and she'd have to put the speakers between us so that I could speak directly into them, and we were sitting this far apart. Finally, she couldn't even go out of the house. And finally, one day, it became clear she needed assistance. So we brought in some help, but her son lived in Hawaii. He wasn't around. So I organized all the tea students, and we were there practically 24-7 for almost six months. I was there every afternoon. And Peg just got sweeter and sweeter and sweeter. It didn't matter what you did for her. She'd be lying there smiling at you. 
She never complained. I don't remember her complaining one time. She would tell me, I'm ready to die. I don't know why it's taking so long. (laughs) Well, I finally figured out why. She'd had a pacemaker put in, and you cannot legally remove them. She should have died six weeks before she did, but that pacemaker just, you know, it was like the Energizer bunny. It wasn't going to let her go. I was the one that went to pick up the morphine when it was finally time to do that. And I remember one day, just all of a sudden realizing what a hole there was going to be in my life. Because I never in a million years would have thought that a 40-year-old 45-year-old and a 93-year-old could have become best friends. So as I say, in a way, being at the dying process of somebody you really are that close to at the beginning is actually more difficult because you have all your personal desires mixed in there. I don't want you to die. But eventually... This is the gift of dying. Eventually, not only is the person who's dying ready to die, but those people who love them are ready to let them go. And it is my experience in every single dying, from Diana to now, the last one with my dear friend Mika, that until the loved ones were willing to say, I am ready to let you go, please go, that person would not leave. Or, as in the case of the really angry man, they only could leave in the middle of the night when no one was around. I tell you these things to encourage you. When my father died, I felt such pity for my two brothers because my father's body was the first dead body they had ever seen. Bad enough that your father is dead, but that this is the first time you have to face that? Don't wait. Find yourself someone who needs your help. Involve yourself in their dying process. You may start out like I did, thinking you're going to help. (laughs) You're not going to help. They are going to help you. They are going to help you with your dying, and even better, with your living. So I just wanted to end with something that Suzuki Roshi wrote years ago after a visit to Yosemite. It is my favorite thing describing who we are, this source that we are going to return to. I went to Yosemite National Park and I saw some huge waterfalls. The highest one there is 1,340 feet high. 
and from it the water comes down like a curtain thrown from the top of the mountain. It does not seem to come down swiftly as you might expect. It seems to come down very slowly because of the distance. And the water does not come down as one stream, but is separated into many tiny streams. From a distance it looks like a curtain. And I thought it must be a very difficult experience for each drop of water to come down from the top of such a high mountain. It takes time, you know, a long time, for the water finally to reach the bottom of the waterfall. And it seems to me that our human life may be like this. We have many difficult experiences in our life, but at the same time I thought the water was not originally separated, but was one whole river. Only when it is separated does it have some difficulty in falling. It is as if the water does not have any feeling when it is one whole river. Only when separated into many drops can it begin to have or express some feeling. When we see one whole river, we do not feel the living activity of the water. But when we dip a part of the water into a dipper, we experience some feeling of the water. And we also feel the value of the person who uses the water. Feeling ourselves and the water in this way, we cannot use it in just a material way. It now becomes a living thing. Before we were born, we had no feeling. We were one with the universe. This is called mind only, or essence of mind, or big mind. After we are separated by birth from this oneness, as the water falling from the waterfall is separated by the wind and rocks, then we have feeling. You have difficulty because you have feeling. You attach to the feeling you have without knowing just how this kind of feeling is created. When you do not realize that you are one with the river or one with the universe, you have fear. Whether it is separated into drops or not, water is water. Our life and death are the same thing. When we realize this fact, we have no fear of death anymore and we have no actual difficulty in our life. So the next time you know someone is having difficulty or has died or is dying, write them a letter. Just write what's in your heart. Remind them of something that you did together or some image you have of them in your heart or go to see them. And if you get to the door and you think to yourself, what on earth can I say? Remember three things. Mm. Lao Tzu said this. There are only three things to learn. Simplicity, patience, and compassion. These are our greatest treasures. In action and thought, be simple. 
Be patient with both enemies and friends. And have compassion for yourself. It's going to be hard to step through the second door. It's okay. Let it be hard. Have that experience. And go through the door anyway. What's the worst that could happen? Thank you. So we have a few minutes if anybody had a question or something that they would like to, um, to say about this topic. <laughs> I mean, we could talk about this topic for years, obviously. But. I guess I'd just like to add a few things about it. Uh, it, it. First of all, it was a gift to have you here, and you didn't know I was going to be here. You didn't know I was going to be here. It was kind of you to ask beforehand if it was okay to talk about Diana. quite a gift that you were willing to talk over. I don't remember the details that you remember. I of course not. Yeah. What I do remember is how, and I mean this sincerely, how little you did while everyone was doing so much, while we were so involved in the decisions and the care, and you were, you were simplicity in that moment, just hmm. presence, you know, two-way, if you will. Dumb blind luck. You dumb blind luck, exactly. And, um, and it was a gift because we had so many things to do. And as you pointed out, there was a, um, the family situation was complicated. Yeah. You know, so there were a lot of different directions. And so, you know, your presence, and I didn't know your reluctance to be there. That, that's a and I wasn't going to tell you then either. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you being there in the morning the night before, Diana had a grand mal seizure out of nowhere. And I remember very clearly thinking if there was some way I could get away from this, I would. Yeah. I mean, I was not drawn to it at all. I just wanted to beat it out of there. But there was no way I had to go toward it. If you, you made the choice. I didn't feel like I had much of a choice. But, but the other piece that I think is, is interesting to the group is Diana was a very independent kid. Mm-hmm. Before she got sick, you couldn't you, you couldn't give her a hug. She would squirm away. So she was not a cuddly kid. Yeah. And as she got more and more incapacitated and more dependent, she turned into a very receptive. So that, it, as you pointed out, anything you did for her was just, yeah. you know. So she got the experience of receiving love, which has a until she got sick, she was not that kind of kid. She would push you away. She was mm. a tomboy, you know. Yeah. I mean, she wasn't, you know, mean, but I mean, she just wanted to be her own person. And mm-hmm. so dependency gave her another aspect of life. And mm-hmm. we were right in that with her being, you know, beside her ear and, and the one who could just focus on that while we were, you know, doing crowd control. So yeah. So it's a wonderful gift to have you here. And it's wonderful to hear this for me because it closes in just a little, little way about what it was like to. To have that experience with you. Yeah. No, I, you know, this is, this is the... Human beings are so complex. And then when you get many of them together, the dynamics of human relationships are beyond complex. So each of us are, are bringing our own stuff to the situation for good or bad. <laughs> and really... What practice helps you do, I think, is 
the image I like to use is the buoy. The buoy is connected by a chain. And the chain goes down to the ground, right? And that's the ground of being. That's the universe. And the chain is practice. The chain is your meditation practice. Because you can't help the, the ships and the cruise lines that are going to come through your life. You know, sometimes it's just little rowboats and sometimes it's the princess cruise. You know, and your, your buoy is going back and forth like this. But if you didn't have that chain, your buoy would be flying out the Atlantic Ocean or the Pacific Ocean. But because you have your practice, you can, you know, you're going like this, but eventually you can come back to here. And, you know, there is, there is no princess cruise line like death and dying, quite frankly. That's, I, I've said it many times to my students, death trumps everything. There is nothing more important when someone is dying. That's what you have to do. <coughs> there are no appointments anymore except that one. So thank you again for allowing me to be there and receive this gift that I have passed on very dedicatedly in her name. Everybody I work with, they know about Diana. I think maybe that's why she had to come into this life. Anyone else want to say something? I would just like to thank you for making a very difficult subject uh, very enjoyable, actually. And oh, I hope it's not too enjoyable, though. Oh, thank you. No, uh, I was very struck recently. Uh, my older brother. Uh, he said to me, I, I just don't even know how you can do work like that. He said, this is like the last thing I would want to do. And I, I tried to talk to him about it and said, you know, what practice has taught me, if nothing else, is one, one night I was talking about going towards difficulty in a lecture. And I'll just never forget, it was a dear friend who was <coughs> one of the teachers at my school. She raises her hand at the end and she says, but Nisha, Sometimes I don't want to go towards that difficult thing. And I said, well, so just because you turn your head away, do you think the difficult thing has just disappeared? She said, no. I said, no, it's hiding over here and it's going to catch you then when you're least expecting it and least prepared. Wouldn't you like to be prepared and meet it this way? And that is what I was trying to talk about tonight. Even though every single time, you know, at the beginning of one of these, I mean, I just know, oh, here's the next one. There's always this part of me, oh, God, can you do this? Oh, you know how hard this is going to be. And this other part that says, yeah, but it's not going away. And here's another opportunity to learn and be prepared. Because we all know we're heading in that direction. It could be five minutes from now. It could be 30 years. But, you know, they say the old joke about death and taxes. <laughs> taxes isn't even in the issue. We all know that death is waiting for us. Everything is going to die. Everyone you know is going to die. 
And so the only thing that you have are your actions. That is the ground upon which you stand. So, like Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts, let's be prepared. (laughs) Well, thank you again so much for inviting me to be part of this. Uh, It is always wonderful to see these lovely small groups um, all over the Bay Area and know that the Dharma is alive and well. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.